Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 277 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is July 8th, 2013. We've got a big show for you this week on the podcast. Hope you all enjoyed the 4th of July, Independence Day, long weekend, I guess you could say. And We had a hiatus last week. I was actually on vacation, so we did not do a show, so I apologize for that. We're going to get to all the questions that we got. During the downtime, if you have any questions or comments for the next show, you can email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Call us at 206-888-6755 or leave a voicemail right on the web at peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page and you can leave a voicemail right from your computer. Later on the show, we got Dan Weber coming up, talking some USC football. And we have in the first segment, Coach Harvey Hyde. What's going on, Coach Harvey? Well, I'm doing pretty good, buddy. I'm on the roll, getting ready for football, getting prepared, starting to read my publications and uh, find out uh, everything what the readers or the writers think what's going on. And we've got a lot of different uh, opinions on who will be in the uh, championship game or the Rose Bowl or who will win the Pac-12 or the Big 12 or the Big 10. And I like just sort of uh, looking over everyone's opinions and then form my own. Yeah, it's a fun time of year. We're getting down to the wire. Fall camp starts for USC in less than a month, just a little over, uh, a little under four weeks away. And before we jump into the questions we got this week, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com. That's sctickets.com. Or you can call them at 1-800-888-7287 if you need tickets for anything, concerts, any kind of sporting events, if you want to go to the theater, things like that, you can go to sctickets.com and they will help you out. I know the Dodgers and Angels are starting to win some games now, so they're trying to dig out of the the cellars. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in Southern California and sporting events across the nation, so you can check them out at sctickets.com. And Coach, uh, I want to jump right into some of these questions. We have a, uh, a voicemail one for you. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for it. Uh, let me tell you, man, uh, they can help you with concert tickets, too. I was about in the front row with Celine Dion and also Fleetwood Mac. So wow, uh, they are good at Southern California Ticket Service. Fleetwood Mac, they play that uh, Staples. They, they play at Staples, but they and they also play with the USC marching band sometimes. So I'm sure I don't know if the band showed up for that concert or not. No, 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 no. I didn't see the band, but uh, Fleetwood Mac at Staples Center. What was it? July the third. Oh, okay. Yeah, for Tusk. So if people don't know the USC marching band. I think it's the only collegiate marching band with a platinum album because they actually played on Fleetwood Mask uh, on Tusk, the album Tusk. And you know that song that they always play uh, at the Coliseum. And they, they did a VH1 special a while back where Fleetwood Mac played and they had the USC marching band come out. So that was fun. And uh, check that out. All right. Well, we got off topic well, there. Let me tell you, I saw the USC marching band in Catalina on July the 4th. They marched right down Front Street. Right down Front Street. It was great. Oh, yeah, I saw some tweets about that. It's a big tradition. They've been doing that for years and years, going to Catalina and playing on the 4th of July. 
they it was great. Everybody uh, gathers there, then they have a concert and they play more songs and everybody really enjoys it. The kids have a good time too. I'm sure they do. All right. Well, let's uh let's jump right in here. We got some band knowledge. <laughs> Dropping some USC band knowledge there on you to start with, but uh we have a voicemail question to start off the show, coach. Here you go. Yeah, this is Bill. Um I would like to hear coach Hyde speak about the mental preparation uh of the team for the season and also for individual games. I'd love to hear him talk about any of the special tricks that he that he used to get the players to believe in him, his staff, and, of course, themselves. And I'd also like to know if USC has any formal coursework in the psychology of winning in sports. Uh, but that might be a, a question better directed at Dan. Anyway, thank you, and fight on. Bye. Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, uh, this is a long question as far as the answer, if I was to tell you all the examples. But I think the number one key thing as far as a head coach is Knowing each one of your players individually in a close feeling where they can come to you, talk to you about anything, and they know that you care about them. Uh, They can come into your office, not just when they're in trouble, but they can come into your office to ask you a question or a personal question or if they've got something they don't know how to decide. They say, Coach, can you help me with this? I need to know what you think about this. And once they know you care about them and you love them, then they're going to do anything for you, anything. I mean, uh, you can you can't spank a child until that child knows you love them, and then you can do anything to that child. And that child wants to win for you, and does not want to let you down, because you won't let them down. So I think that's the key thing right there. As far as uh, as a head coach, I think you've got to be in part a part of the entire football program. I mean, from strength and conditioning to academics to offense to defense to special teams to all areas that surround your football team. You've got to be honest with the media. You've got to be direct with the media so the media respects you. You can't beat around the bush. You've got to tell them this is the way it is, and they start to respect you more because they know that you're being honest with them and upfront. Sometimes it's hard to do especially when it's a negative type of situation. But I think that's the thing you have to do as far as with the media. And I ask the media in return, just be fair and do your homework before you form an opinion on the team, myself, or an individual player. I think that's key. Now, as far as getting your team ready to play, you build that up. You can't ask that team to be at the same emotional pitch pitch every day at practice. There's got to be, it's a business day. When you go on the field, you've got to complete your job. You've got to accomplish what needs to be accomplished that day, and you can't waste any play, any period during that time. I have gone back when we've had a wasted period with no effort and just told the uh, manager, turn the clock back, we're redoing that period. And then when they've I've also, when we've had a great practice and it's warm or whatever, I've cut practice short. So you reward great efforts, and you don't tolerate poor efforts. And I think that if you're fair with the kids like that, they understand what you expect for them on the field, not only in practice, but in the games. You want 100% all the time. And nothing more than that. There isn't 110%. There's 100%. What the maximum effort is 
for every individual on the football team, including managers and coaches and whomever. I've had coaching staff meetings where I've ripped my coaches for not leading by example, by walking by a piece of tape that's on the practice field and you're not picking it up because you think someone else should do that. You pick it up. And all of a sudden, you'll see your players not throwing the tape on the ground, and they'll be picking it up. This is our home. We spend more time on the practice field than we do on your own or in your or on your own backyard at home. Do you throw things around your yard at home? I hope you don't. If you do, you're not going to do it here. Then I think there's ways of getting your team ready to play. I used to always have a team meeting on Friday nights where I would talk to the team about what we need to do tomorrow and why we're here and how many minutes there are in a game and how many plays there are in a game and what we have to do to win on the road or win in this climate or win in this situation we're in or do we have to play above our heads or do we just have to go out and have a normal business day and not screw it up and we'll win this football game. I think you have to be honest with your players. You can't tell your players or mislead your players on every one of your opponents on how tough they are when the kids look at the films. And they say, what's Coach telling us? They can't play. So all of a sudden, they don't believe you when you need their effort. Because you've already told them when you beat a team after you beat them 50 to nothing that you said this team is going to be, be tough to beat. You've got to be honest with your players. You need supreme efforts against certain teams. And you also have to be honest and say, guys, we're on the road. We've got to stay focused. We can't get distracted. If we play our best and they play their best, they can't beat us. So it's up to you. Then there's ways of getting them emotional ready for a game. I, I, I always did all of my own pep talks. Individual coaches had their own meetings. Uh, I, I love to talk to the team and get them ready to play as far as before a game. Now, one little special thing I always did, and I don't know if any other coaches do this, but I had a great arrangement with my uh, director of the bands, wherever I was, wherever I was coaching, that I would ask that I could have a set or a group, maybe five or six of the drums from the band into our locker room. And our players look forward to this. And after and during my pep talk, the band would be outside the locker room and they would know I'd give a single when they would start their pounding of the drums. It would start low. Then the more I got fired up, the louder they would get and louder it would get. And if you've ever been in a locker room, when the drums play, there's an echo and it's loud. And we'd play those drums until I said it's time to take the field and all the way down the tunnel, those drums would be pounding and beating, and our players were ready to go. We'd go out on the field, and that would be my way of getting the team on the field. Now, at halftime, sometimes I had problems getting them back because they have halftime performances. But in most situations, the bands would rush back, especially when they were the first band on the field for their halftime performance, where I could have the bands for the second half, too. So you've got to work together with your band director. You've got to know who he is. You got to take care of them. And the way I used to take care of them, I would go to their band practices and I'd walk up on that same ladder that the band director stands on and directs the band. And I would thank 
every individual band member for what they bring to the game and the amount of time that they play. A lot of these kids aren't on scholarship. They put in as much time as all of us do. I would stand up there and thank them and tell them, we hear you, we appreciate you, thank you very much. And that little, little type of inspiration to them that you know that they're there really makes them play well too. So we're all part of a team, and then there's always other things that I used to do as far as getting my team ready to go or my players. I could tell when a player was having a problem, and I'd call him over and I'd say, you're not having a good practice today, what's bothering you? And uh, they would tell me, and I'd say, we'll work it out after practice, you come in my office. Or uh, you can tell, you've got to be there for these kids. These are kids. They're not men. And, you know, sometimes always your assistant coaches don't really handle kids the right way. And then I'd have to call one of my coaches in and say, you know, I listen to you. You yell at this kid all the time. Have you ever given him any loving? Do you care about this kid? This kid's not listening to you anymore because all you do is yell at him. Quit yelling at him and maybe call him over and don't belittle him. and Give him a little bit of positive talk, especially when he makes a great play. Tell them that's what I expect of you. That's the type of player you are. That's why I spank you sometimes, but that's what you can do. Now, I can't go on on and on on this, but <laughs> I could go all day, Ryan, and I'm sorry, but the question was asked me, so I answered it. All right. <laughs> well, it was a, it was open-ended question, of course. I'm not really sure about if they have specific sports psychology classes that the uh, – um, the players say we could try to find that one out. So I'm, I'm sure they, oh, they have them. They yeah, have I'm sure them. there's some, but I don't know anything yeah, specific about guys. it. Hell, I'll do my own sports psychology. Ah, yes. It's that's, this is sports psychology for the USC fans every week, coach. We do it on the show. Oh, okay. I know what I messed up, but they do have sports psychologists in the athletic department that these kids can go to and talk to, uh, on problems. And me, I, I want a kid to know he can come to me. I mean, and if there's a problem, we're going to take care of this problem. One way or another, whether it's at home or whatever it is, or in the classroom, or the academic advisor is on his butt for something that he shouldn't be. Hey, we're going to work this out. We're not going to have him talk about it. We're going to work it out so the kid feels good about coming to USC, and he's proud to be a Trojan. Well, it makes sense, Coach. All right, well, let's uh, let's move on. I know we kind of went on that one a little bit. Uh, Tarion had a question. He says, Coach, in several of the past off-seasons, you've uh, patiently answered several of my technical football questions, and it's really increased my understanding and enjoyment of the game. My question today concerns uh, the the content of play calling. I recently viewed a TV program that showed Matt Barkley calling a play in the huddle. It seemed very complex and contained a lot of information for that given play. Are calls more complex now than they were when you were coaching? And would you quickly compose an imaginary play call and explain its contents. That's from Terrian. Well, I certainly will, and they sir have become more complicated. It seems as though the longer you can make the play, the more better the play is supposed to be. <laughs> I, I really agree with that, especially in the NFL. I listened to some of those, and I couldn't remember to come repeat the play to the huddle. After I get the play, I listen to it, I say, what in the hell is all that about? <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely amazing. But, uh, yeah, when we used to call a play, it was very simple. We always called the formation first. So you'd say right or left, depending which way we wanted to put the tight end or the strength of the formation, right or left. 
uh, right pro, or we didn't have to say right pro because that meant we had a tight end, a flanker, and an X. And uh, we'd call the play, 38 sweep, which means the three back, quarterback was one, fullback was two, tailback was three. Our whole numberings to the strong side were eight, six, four, two, and zero. To the odd side, which would be to the left, it was odd numbers, same way. So if I said, now you could call the play right now. If I said, right, 38 sweep, it's the three back to the eight hole with all of the blocking rules that the linemen know, which they are, recognizing the defense, the fullback recognizing the defense, the tailback recognizing the defense, and, of course, the quarterback turning, tossing the ball, reverse pivot, tossing the ball to the quarterback or to the tailback, which is the three-back, running to the outside. That seems simple, doesn't it? Now, it's brown right, just the way it is, or some, I'm just assuming, I don't know. Brown, right, yellow. Brown, right, yellow. Zoom. Uh, on to check with me or something. I'm just saying this. So they come out and they run the same damn play. <laughs> now, the only thing that I neglected to say was the snap count. And I apologize. Then you've got to say, like, right 38 sweep on sound. Right 38 sweep on two. Right 38 sweep on three. Which meant you come out and you say, boo, and away you go. The play's gone. Or you come out and you say, boo, 18, 18, set, hot, hot, hot. And then you go on the snap count. Because a lot of times you go on color and your live color is telling the team if you're audibleizing, if you're not going on sound. So if you come out the next time and you say, if it's on two and you had 38 sweep called, and you said, green, green, well, that's an alert to everybody on the team. Green means audible. Green, 39, 39, or 36, 36. Sit, hut, hut, and you're on that play. Or you have a red, which would be pass play. So you come out and you say, red, red. They all know it's the alert. What are you going to say? You have 36, whatever, whatever your route would be for that game off of 36, play action pass. So if you had a pass called, the red would alert it, and it would then go to the pass. So there's a lot of different ways of, of, of calling plays. I believe the simpler, the better, except, you know, you get too complicated and the kids are starting to think. You don't have the time in college that you have in the NFL where you have meetings all day and the guys work all day. Then, of course, they get longer when you say Zoom. Uh, that means motion. Or you say, well, same thing, right slot. That's not hard, right slot. you got the formation set to the right, which is tied in, and you got a slot to the left. You still run 38 sweep. So it's a different way of calling plays, but they're very simple. I believe in keeping them simple. Every single word means something to someone, to someone. When you go by the number system like I do or did, it was simpler for me to understand it, too. And if it's simpler for me to understand it, it's got to be simpler for them to understand it than to give colors for everything. 
So uh, that's the way it goes. The uh, coach, when I put a, a little helmet cam or a headband cam on Max Wittick uh, maybe a month or so ago, and uh, we put the video up just to kind of see what it looked like when Max was in the huddle and, and you know, throwing the football around and stuff like that. And it was a lot of fun, and uh, Max liked it. Um, but I blurted I, – uh, I had to mute out when he was actually in the huddle calling the play because we didn't want to give away – any information that you know USC didn't want to give away, we just wanted to kind of show them what it looked like. We didn't want to give away the what the play calls were and see what they were running, things like that. But they were long; they were certainly a lot more complicated than than you know thirty eight sweep and stuff like that. Um, I I wish I could. Re- I mean, I don't want to give away what was in there, and I don't even remember because it was so long and complicated. But every single play just seemed to be like it was two sentences long. I mean, it was ten. 15 seconds or something to call the play it seemed like maybe not that long but it really was complicated they're looking on their wristband and, and making the play calls and stuff and uh somehow everyone in the huddle had to to comprehend what this play was and everyone had to be on the same page otherwise the play wouldn't work no you're exactly right you know it seems as though the more complicated you make it the smarter you are and, uh, and you're trying to outthink someone remember when john mckay was at usc you know what his toss was called 28 toss 28 toss. They ran that over and over and over. Then they had blast. And they had all the blast, power, toss. Blast, power, toss. And then they had straight ahead of trap. Not a lot of plays. You don't have to have a lot of plays. What you have to do is execute your plays. And you got to have great players and execute it and be hard-nosed and know what you're supposed to do against all blocking schemes. And you can't run every play against every defense. And coaches who try to do that, are just outthinking themselves. You can't take everything away. So if they're doubling up here, there's something somewhere else that's open. So uh, don't run into a stack. Don't run into where you have three guys on defense and you've got two guys to block them. That doesn't work normally. I mean, it just makes sense. So just get out of it and go the other way or find the opening, wherever it might be. All right, let's move on to Stephen. He says, uh, a couple weeks ago, Ryan, you and Coach Harvey Hyde wondered aloud how I felt about the summer practices, which I defended in an email, after Stephen Mitchell sadly went down in a heap. Well, I like the concept, but I believe they should be supervised by the coaches. And he put in parentheses, can't believe the NCAA doesn't allow coaches there. I watch the footage you have online at uscfootball.com and worry that someone could easily accidentally wander onto the field and cause a big pileup since the guys look like they're going at full speed or someone could accidentally run into a piece of equipment, a runner on the track, etc., it does not look safe. Barring any NCAA rule changes, then I believe the guys should practice at 75% at the most. Otherwise, they are bound to get hurt. That's uh, Stephen's comments on the summer workouts. Well, you know, we commented on that. We came back and commented on that, and I felt that they should allow coaches on the field after a certain period of time. I'd rather have coaches on the field they have two days and four days without coaches on the field. I think you'll learn more and the kids would rest more and spend more time training in the weight room, uh, working on what they need to work on. Um, as far as practicing at 75%, you can't practice at 75% because the game's played at 100%. Just don't have your, you just don't have your timing on routes, your footwork. Uh, everything's got to be like, 100%. Your first step is always 100% on alignment uh, until you make contact when you're just shorts and, and uh, T-shirts. And then you, you give a little bit. you got to give a little bit. Otherwise, people are going to get hurt or shoved on top of people. And, 
you can't have that. And if you're playing in the secondary, too, if a guy's coming across the middle, you got to back off. But you got to run your routes and drops and everything full speeds and your coverages and then avoid any type of collision within the secondary or linebacker area or, or on the line of scrimmage. You just can't have the collisions. Because if you have the collisions, you're going to have more serious injuries. Now, the knee injuries come from just tripping. It's amazing. You say, what happened on that? How did he tear his ligament? Or taking a sharp break on a pattern, and it just happens. And it happens on the basketball courts with these guys, uh, football players. It's uh, it's uh, strange. Like, I had a rule you couldn't play basketball as a football player. I told them if they want to play basketball, go over and see the basketball coach and get a scholarship from him. But then Pete Carroll used to play basketball every day at noon with his players. So it's just the philosophy of what you have and how you do it. Uh, as far as the summer workouts, asking me the questions, can you go half speed? No. Can you go three-quarter speed? No. you got to go full speed with uh, the uh, precautionary thing that, hey, don't be a half-speed All-American. I used to call my players when we were going uh, through our drills, and the guy put a big hit on somebody. Everyone would, ooh. And I'd say, hey, half-speed, let me see you do that in the game. Don't be doing it when a guy and no one's going full speed. You're just going full speed. And that used to really upset me when a guy would put a hit on somebody when we're not doing full speed. Go ahead, bud. Um, so as far as the summer workouts go and the injuries, I just want to, like, I'm down there watching them. Uh, most of the workouts this summer have been on the track or uh, in the Cromwell field, which, you know, surrounded by the track. Uh, they have done some on Howard Jones Field, which is where the team practices, so that should be fairly safe. But, I mean, in any practice situation, there's a limited amount of space uh, on the sidelines. And there there is some equipment. There's usually big pads, which kind of help, um, you know, kind of lying around that they use for pole vaulting and things like that. They're kind of around the field. But there's also a a harder track that they run and do the, the long jumps off of, just off of the the field in the middle, there's a sand pit um, that people could kind of run into and maybe twist an ankle or something. I mean, there's certainly areas where you could get hurt around there. I don't see anyone accidentally wandering onto the field and, and something like that happening. Uh, but there was even a play the week before. They went on, you know, they didn't practice last week because of the 4th of July holiday. But the, the last practice before that, I think it was on a Friday, uh, Marquis Lee had beat whoever the defensive back was down the middle of the field and it was pretty deep and Cody Kessler threw the ball intentionally short because he didn't want Marquis Lee to go through the end zone and onto the, the hard surface. And Marquis Lee was complaining like, Hey, I could have, there was a, actually a big pad there. He could have jumped on and Cody Kessler saw the play develop and purposely threw the ball short because he didn't want to get his star player hurt trying to make a spectacular play. Lee wanted to. He wanted to make that play, and you know it would have been exciting, but obviously it's an off-season workout. It's not really worth it. So I think the players are aware of that. It's certainly not 100% foolproof. Um, when you're running sideways and you're, 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 it's hard to stop, you could go into that sand pit or onto a hard surface, something like that. But I think it's something the players are aware of, and they're, they look like they're going 100% out there, and I agree with what Coach Harvey Hyde said. I don't think you can really practice at 75% and be effective. You know, let me mention this. First of all, I notice on your videos, too, Ryan, that they are on uh, the facility where the track is and everything. 
why aren't they on the football field? What what is this? What's the deal? Is, is the football field for what practice on or or what? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, sometimes they're they're putting in uh, sod or whatever. Like there's construction actually going on, and part of the Howard Jones Field is cut off because they're uh, putting in that new uh, pool facility, the new Olympic uh, swim stadium thing going on over there. And sometimes before fall camp, they actually resod and. They have it blocked off. Um, when they were practicing this time, uh, you know, t- when they practice on Howard Jones Field this summer, it's usually been on the side field on Brian Kennedy Field, not you know, using the main field there. I-, I think it just depends on what's scheduled and what's going on. Um, but the players are actually doing their off-season conditioning workouts on the track field with the coaches, so sometimes they just stay there uh, because it's easier. And, you know, I think they like the artificial surface and stuff. It doesn't seem to be a problem for them, but usually it's just some kind of, you know, whatever's going on with the schedule or if what's convenient because they were already practicing there to begin with. All right. Uh, I would personally think that, uh, if it was my program, which it isn't, that we'd have conditioning on our practice field on the turf and we'd stay on the turf to do our football drills for the team. And uh, I know they're doing construction, but you don't need the whole entire field. You put your back to the construction side, and you go the long way. So that's just me. And if you're a football school, football has priority. Now I know <laughs> USC is all sports, okay? So uh, that's just my humble opinion, humble opinion, that uh, where people and kids say, hey, that's where the team pride comes, because we're a priority. Okay, move on. All right. Well, we got one last one for you, Coach. Um, This is from Melvin. He says, I'm now somewhat confused as to what coaches in general feel about full contact during spring and fall practice. USC seems to have taken the route of being very careful in how much contact is permissible during practice, but Coach Hyde seems to have the opinion that to be a tough, prepared, and dominant football player, you have to participate in full contact during practice before you can really perform in game situations. So what is Coach Kiffin's perspective, position on full contact in practice before the season starts? What do you think, Coach? I really don't know because I can't get inside of his head, okay? But I know there are guidelines now that the Pac-12 have uh, and the NCAA as far as number of days you hit, number of days you just go in shoulder pads and trunks but the days that i would be allowed to go in full pad we're going to take advantage of that we're going to learn how to play the game of football now i don't know what coach kiffin's ideas uh on it uh, but i i feel that the only way you learn how to play anything is to play it now i'm not saying you hit him to death never but you do hit to learn just like you do in any other sport or any other class or teaching situation before you have the test. You got to practice it. You got to study for it. So it's the same thing in football. I believe that you don't learn to tackle unless it's full speed. You don't learn to block unless it's full speed. And you don't learn to, to teach courage. Courage is there and you become accustomed to wearing your uniform, hitting people and finding out you don't get hurt if the equipment is properly fit. That's my answer. All right. Well, Coach, 
good stuff. We had we had a bunch of questions to get to, and then we got through all of them. So thanks again for coming on the show after a little week off, and we'll uh, we'll be looking forward to talk to you again next week. Thanks, buddy, and thanks uh, everybody out there for sending the questions in, and uh, let's get ready for some football. Yes, yeah, pretty soon. We're counting down the weeks, so uh, it'll be a lot of fun talking again next week with you, Coach Harvey Hyde. And coming up in thirty seconds, we're going to talk with. USCfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. So stay tuned for that. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287, that's 1-800-888-7287, or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Joining us on the line is uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. What's going on, Dan? How you doing? Not a lot, I guess. When you think about it, we've just finished the quietest, um, quietest week in the quietest part of the summer, and now we've got uh, you know four uh, four weeks to get ready for fall, and um, then four weeks of fall practice. So uh, we're we're almost there. Three weeks to. Uh, to uh, media day for the you know Pac-12 media day. Although I just saw, I think SEC media day is like this week. You know, I mean it's like <laughs> uh, they're like two weeks ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, we're getting there. You can see it from here now. It's one of those ones. You know, where okay, it's coming. The finish line is in sight. We're almost to some football, and we'll have a two, three more weeks or so, I guess of. Uh, off-season workouts that we'll be able to go down and, and check out the players until they start fall camp uh, August 3rd, Dan. Is that, that's the start date, right? Afternoon practice in August. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, you know what? I don't know. They're going to afternoon practice uh, in the fall uh, when school starts. I'm not sure. I, it might be one of those. I think last year, if I recall correctly, I think we had like 10 different starting times for practice in, uh, in, in August. So, uh I wouldn't, uh, you know, write any of those things down in, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, ink that won't, uh, can't erase. You better, better have an eraser on that pencil if you're going to start writing down the, uh, you know, the fall uh, uh, absolute practice schedule. But, uh, but August third supposed to be uh, that Saturday. They report on Friday. Although it's so different now because basically reporting means you move into the, the dorm for uh, fall practice because basically everybody's here. That used to be a big deal when kids went home, you know, for the summer. Everybody'd show up that first day, and you'd see which guys had worked out and which guys had, you know, eaten all summer and all of that. But uh, there's not much, no, not much mystery now involved with the, um, you know, the opening of fall practice. Uh, all right. Well, we'll see what the the starting times are uh, if they move them all over the place or if it's going to be uniform. I, I remember last year, like you said, it was pretty different. Uh, but we do have a bunch of questions to get to, Dan. And here's that we're going to start Good. off with one of our friends. Uh, here's a voicemail question. We haven't heard from him for a while. Uh, here you go. Hello, Ryan. This is Garrett Witt uh, from St. Helena. The question today is, can you um, paraphrase or kind of give us a sense of what's the mood 
of the team. Obviously, we've heard a lot of speculation as to what will happen if they have a bad year. Obviously, with coaching changes and the like. So, given that reality, um, what's the mood of the team as best you can tell as we get ready for the beginning of fall camp here? Uh, probably less than what, less than a month away or so. So, hope everything's going well. Um, thank you, and uh, take care and fight on. Bye bye. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, and I think it's one of the benefits of, of looking at the videos that uh, that Ryan does that uh, I think are really instructive. And, and, and I think there's a couple of things that come through in those videos, and usually I'm standing there next to Ryan, so I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing on the video, is they're working really hard. I mean, it's the, you don't see the conditioning. We really don't see the conditioning uh, with the coaches, but it, it seems like they, they're doing more running and working harder conditioning-wise. And they go right into the, um, into, uh, the throwing sessions, and you see guys just running and running and running and running, you know, and, and obviously, you know, Nelson Aguilar as a, as a young guy and Marquise Lee, you know, only a year older, but a, sort of the veteran, set the tone. And uh, the second thing you see is how much fun it looks like they're having. I mean, they're giggling, and, and it's not, you know, giggling at silly stuff or giggling at, it's giggling at, at really, uh, you know, coming after one another and making plays, you know, and, having fun doing that and then they really you know we're seeing things we haven't seen before we're seeing uh defensive guys uh really getting things out of the drills you know out of the past you know if they get seven on seven or eleven on eleven they're really running defenses it's not just where everybody's uh is going man to man and it's just mono a mono kind of a thing but where they're making calls on defense and they're actually uh you know they're self-coaching but but they've got a a plan in mind that, that we really haven't seen before. Uh, they really believe they're getting more out of it, and I think that's a key. If your players believe that what they're doing is the right thing and that what they're doing is preparing them and getting them ready to play, I mean, I think that's one of the things they had to overcome last year and never could was the way they practiced didn't convince those kids that they were ready to play games. And, and so often the way, you know, they got started in games – convinced them they really weren't ready to play in those games. So um, I think that's a big thing. I'm I'm impressed. It's a younger team. It's a younger feeling team, obviously, when your three quarterbacks have started, you know, a total of two games. Uh, But you get the sense, too, that they're more able, and I'm going to talk about some of the maybe I think might be myths about, you know, what are coming up with this team. But but I think they may be better, better ready a quarterback, for example, even with young guys and inexperienced guys, because I think they're going to be in a position where everybody will be able to play, and it won't be a case of, you know, um, Matt Barkley goes down, now what do you do? I think this is going to be, uh, so in some ways, what they're doing to prepare themselves seems to actually be doing that, that this is a better, will be a better prepared team. I mean, you see the offensive linemen who come out during the throwing session and very seriously, you know, work on their um, on on various you know play calls and starts and stances, and very seriously, you know, again, self-coaching. They've got enough veterans to uh, to self-coach, and uh, so 
we're seeing a lot of, you know, positive signs. It's, you know, it's obviously easy to be positive now. You know, nobody, you know, on the other side punched you in the face yet. So <laughs> you can be like really upbeat here. But, uh, but, you know, I wouldn't have, uh, if I looked at it and said, what could they do better than they're doing now? I'm not sure I could, I could come up with something. I think they're, they're really, they're really getting, uh, you know, as much as they can. And the guys who, you know, the 18, 19 guys who, who missed, uh, uh, you know, weren't there by the end of the spring are working their way back gradually. And, you know, with the goal of everybody being back, uh, except for the, you know, the two wide receivers with the knee injury, Stephen Mitchell and, and George Farmer, everybody being back in August. So, you know, from that standpoint, going pretty well. All right, uh, let's go on to Mac D in Vancouver, British Columbia. We love the international questions. It says, Dan, the last two shows have discussed about how USC will try to speed things up to run more plays on offense in an effort to score more points. In order to run more plays, isn't just on the offense speeding up, but also has to, uh, also has to have help from the defense. Running three plays in 10 seconds can have the same result as running three plays in a minute. The defense has got to get more stops to help the offense get the ball more often and be able to run more plays and wear an opponent out. Even though USC averaged the same yards per play as Oregon, it shows how inconsistent the offense was and poor the defense was in 2012. Do you think the stronger, more consistent defense will be just as beneficial to USC's offense than just the tempo? That's, again, MACD in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, good good question from Canada. Um, uh I think, you know, they go hand-in-hand. I mean, they really obviously do, and I think that was one of the secrets to Pete's success is the defense gave the offense a whole lot of short fields, and the offense knew how to take care of it. I mean, last year, even when I mean, the defense, you know, got the ball turned over to USC pretty decently. I mean, they, they, uh, they made plays. That, you know, there were games where they just went away at the end or, or tired out or, uh, you know, didn't have enough bodies or, or whatever. They gave up obviously too many third downs where they were who had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, but uh, but if you give the other team bad plays, play on the other side of the line of scrimmage, um, uh, force them to go you know third and long, uh, and then don't give up third and long. I mean that's the key. I mean USC used to just you know live on uh, you know teams desperate third and long, and you know that's that's the ball you pick off instead of conceding them both the throw and the catch. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, putting the two together, I think I don't think you say one or the other. I think, the, you know, the two have to go together. The offense can't, you know, get the benefit of a stop or a, or a takeaway and then turn it back over or, you know, commit a penalty and put themselves in a hole or do the kind of things that they did last year just way too many times. I mean, somebody wrote on the, on the P this week, and I, I've written it also, Try to watch one of those. If you flip it around and you go through and you stop at the Pac-12 network and you watch those, uh, they're replaying those, uh, you know, games in 60 minutes where they, you get to see a whole game. And you just want to scream if you were watching, say, the UCLA game or the start of the Utah game or uh, so many of those games. And you think you see how many times or the Arizona game. Oh, you almost can't watch the fourth quarter, but you you – you think of all the times USC's, you know, uh, injuries, damage done to USC was self-inflicted. I mean, just sloppiness, stupid stupidity, bad, you know, decisions in every part of the, you know, 
the game plan basically and then and the calls and uh you just think gosh if they would have you know just eliminated the the self-inflicted stuff uh where does where does USC end, you know end up last year but uh but I think it you know it was uh, equal opportunity there were games for example you know where you know the offense scores 51 points and they get smoked by Oregon and then there's a game where the Notre Dame game where you know what they get 13 and still get smoked you know so uh you know you can't really you know point a finger one way or the other it just was kind of equal opportunity uh, failings, uh, and, and they didn't seem to have their act together. I mean, heck, what do you say about the Georgia Tech game? I mean, uh, you know, where do you, who fell down in, in, in that game? Obviously, you know, you even hold Georgia Tech to 21, you ought to beat them uh, with USC's talent. Even with the new quarterback, it wasn't like you didn't have a month to, you know, get ready for the game. Uh, so, uh uh, I don't. I don't think you can go one way or the other. I think it's uh, both sides have to to get better. I mean, they just have to perform better, have to be uh, game plan better, have to better better philosophy about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And uh, you know, from what we've seen in spring, what we're seeing in the summer, they do. Now, you know, they haven't had a game yet, <laughs> and we'll see. But uh, I think the message has gotten through. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's move on. Al Capone had a couple of questions. He's our buddy, also named uh, Dan. Uh, first one, it's kind of recruiting, Dan, but I thought it would be interesting to talk to you about this. He said, uh, when Coach O was here during the Pete Carroll era, it seemed rare that a blue-chip uh, defensive line recruit would decommit. Over the last two years, we've missed on the top two defensive linemen recruits from the state of California. Both had verbally committed to USC. Do you think Coach O is spread too thin right now? So I don't think it has anything to do with Coach O, not even, not even a little bit. I mean, I think it's easy to personalize this stuff, and that's what we do because, uh, you know, we don't see. But it's the program, obviously. You think they'd have lost those kids if they were number one? <laughs> you think they'd have lost those kids if they had a, whatever, 34-game win streak on or 35 straight at the Coliseum or all that kind of stuff or 65 straight 20 points or more games? I don't think so. Uh, so – I just don't see when people say, you know, something about, you know, coaches and recruiting and what have you, da, da, da. Uh, you know, there may be an issue here or there, and I'm guessing those guys probably aren't still here. But uh, in terms of recruiting, uh, no, no, no spreading coach of, you know, too thin. I don't think that can be done, to be honest. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, the program has, allowed people to snipe at it, allowed people to say, you don't want to go there. Uh, too much uh, uncertainty. Look at what, you know, if you're a big-time defensive player and you watched uh, the Oregon game last year, what would have happened in that game? whole country was watching. You know, game day was here, you know, nighttime, you know, all of that, Coliseum. How do you sell this program to some of those top te- – I mean, I think the, the question is how how are they doing what they're doing? I mean, we can focus on the negative, but you can say, gee, did I not remember? They may have gotten the best uh, nose tackle in the country last year. He didn't decommit. He stayed through all that. So I think it's more of I would look at the glass half full and say, how are they getting those guys 
with some of those defensive performances that, again, that wasn't Coach O's fault. So, uh, no, I, I, I don't see that at all. And I th- if you look at what Coach Orgeron is doing this year as far as they're, they're going after some of the more local kids and they're not necessarily the five-star guys. Um, you know, they're, all the commitments right now are, are linemen, offensive and defensive linemen. So it does seem like they're changing maybe the philosophy a little bit. But I agree 100% with what Dan's saying. If the defense turns things around, you got Clancy Pendergast in here and they're, they're shutting people down and making some big plays, big negative plays, not letting these long – opponent offensive drives kind of go through giving up third and longs and things like that I think that changes the attitude of some of the recruits when they get to watch these games as well and certainly winning um, you know you you went from a number one preseason ranked team last year to losing you know five of the last six uh, you saw the momentum as the, the season went south so the recruiting momentum went south as well so I think you get some momentum this year during the season playing well on the field, even if you lose, if, if the defense looks good or the offense looks good, uh, I think that could kind of help with recruiting as well. So certainly the results on the field, I think, could have a lot to do with what's going on. And um, you win games, and I think you could shut up some of the critics and some of the, the negative recruiting that goes on. Um, if they're on pace to win 10 or 11 games, people aren't really going to talk about, well, Lane Kiffin's not going to be there anymore because if they're winning that many games – He's going to be sticking around. So I think I agree with you what you said there, Dan. A lot of it has to do with just what's going on in the field. Well, and, and if you do look at the last two years, um, I would probably, if you said, okay, uh, who got the best two uh, defensive line recruits as a combo package in the last two years? I'm going to take Leonard Williams and Kenny Bigelow and probably say, you know, I'll take these two guys. Everybody else, you can take whoever you want. I'm not sure anybody <laughs> – did better than those two guys over the last two years. That package, if you if you figured out who else had a better, uh, uh, you know, defensive line recruiting year at the very top spot the last two years. I mean, I don't think anybody, you know, is better, you know, in that class as Leonard Williams and uh, and Kenny Bigelow. You know, there's an awful lot to like about him. He's got, you know, got a way to go, but. Uh, based on, you know, only four games as a senior and all of that. But, boy, he sure looks like he wants to, and, and he sure looks like he can't. I mean, he's not a guy, if he walks out with uh, the Alabama starting lineup or the LSU starting lineup, it looks like he's out of place. I mean, he, you know. And I think the other thing that's going to kick in here with the new, the new philosophy about defense, they're going to really benefit, I think, from guys like um, Cody Temple and Antoine Woods, who are going to – you know, again, benefit from Coach O's recru- uh, 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 coaching as opposed to just the recruiting part of it. And if you can show, here's what happens to a kid who comes to USC and gets to play for Coach O and gets to play in a defense that takes advantage of that kid's abilities and Coach O's, uh, you know, kind of temperament uh, on, uh, you know, an approach and philosophy about defense. Uh, I think you can look at that and then say to kids, you know, you can be the next, not necessarily Leonard Williams, you can be the next Cody Temple, who has, you know, just been so impressive, uh, you know, since the end of the spring and through the summer. And we'll see, you know, again, and put on the pads yet. But uh, um, there are kids who, who are showing the kind of signs that you will be able to take out to people and say, this is what USC football is. What were you able to say the last few years? Other than that, you know, second half of 2011 to say this is what USC football is and this is what it will be for you. 
And uh, so I think for the people that say, you know, what what about this year's recruiting? This year's recruiting is going to take place starting, uh, you know, with the Hawaii game. Yeah. And go right through the UCLA game. That's when this year's recruiting is going to take place. It's going to take place on the field. Uh, nothing else really is going to matter uh, other than what this team does on the field, especially recruiting defensive players. You could add Morgan Breslin into that group, too, if you wanted. You're talking about Leonard Williams and, uh, and Kenny Well, yeah, Bidlow. that's right. Here's a kid that, you know, no, he's no kind of off the radar. I mean, UCLA – you know, he was a commit to UCLA, but, uh, you know, played in a, a, in a junior college where nobody could block him. And who knew, uh, you know, what, what kind of player you were, you were going to have there. So, uh, yeah, he will be a, a very much of a commodity that USC can point to and say, look what happened to this kid. He came here and boom. Uh, exactly right. But it, it's going to be results-oriented, I think. Kids look around, and, and last year was a hard year to – I mean, I remember, you know – how hard it was, you know, if you were at the Sun Bowl trying to convince people, you know, that USC is the place to be. That was a, it was a hard sell. Uh, one last part of the question from Al Capone. It's, it's a different subject, but he also asked, uh, what improvements do you expect to see in the Coliseum? If they only plan to invest $100 million, it seems highly unlikely that luxury boxes are in the equation. What do you think about that? Jim? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, uh, uh, I guess the first 70 uh, is the commitment over the first 10 years would seem to be basically, uh, you know, new seats and, uh, and uh, you know, maybe uh, the restrooms and the aisles and, you know, and, and just all the stuff, the, the basic stuff that I, w- I mentioned in the war room. I just saw my hometown, the University of Cincinnati, is going to put in $90 million, $85 million into Nippert Stadium which is actually older than the Coliseum. And uh, uh, I thought, gosh, you know, if they're going to put that kind of money at the University of Cincinnati, I'm not sure that the 70 to $100 million is really more than just really, you know, getting it up to speed. One thing you got to admit, the, the video board is so good. It's, the, you know, second biggest in college football. And, you know, cuts through the sun and the smog and whatever else is, you know, is there. Um, nobody's done a better job, I think, of that, and that so that's a real plus. My take on the on the um, on the on, on luxury boxes would be that as, as has happened in other uh, stadiums, rather than make it a part of the stadium itself, my vision on that would be opposite the press box, you would put up a separate building right outside the entrance, right outside the the, the outside wall that would be uh, probably able to do a whole lot of things. At the University of Texas, for example, when they expanded, they've got like an 11-story building that houses many of their athletic offices and houses like uh, a big souvenir, you know, a bookstore, a souvenir store, and all that kind of stuff on each level. I mean, I, when you come down from the press box, there's like 11 stops on the, uh, on the elevator. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, they had the press box there, too. But it was pretty much a separate building, and I could see that. At, at, at Tennessee, I'm trying to remember, it seems like, whether it is a separate building or not, uh, is it's a multi-layer, multi-level uh, uh, private box uh, you know, situation with the press box at the top. Uh, but it would seem that rather than having to you know, do all the retrofitting that would be involved with, uh, with the earthquake 
fault line and all that kind of stuff uh, to build a separate building from the scratch that would enable you to, you know, have uh, have private boxes hanging over, uh, you know, at midfield, and then have, you know, maybe three or four levels of those would seem to be the way to go. I think maybe Colorado did that as well uh, when they added private boxes recently. So that would be kind of my take on private boxes, and that might be the kind of thing that, you know, they they get a donor or they get, um, you know, if they get a naming rights uh, deal going or something like that where you could, you know, create a uh, kind of a multi-use uh, uh, but semi-separate but but attached in terms of, of its location uh, to the Coliseum rather than trying to, you know, add those to the, you know, say, top rim of, of the Coliseum. I, I don't see that as much. I see it as a separate uh, separate construction situation. And uh, one last thing, Dan. We I know some people complain about talking about the NCAA and all of that stuff, and I've, I've done some radio interviews, and the first thing they're always asking is, what do USC fans think about Oregon? you know, getting only one scholarship and the slap on the wrist of all that. We've had a bunch of people write in, Luke, and had some people call in and uh, and just about what what's going on with the NCAA. And maybe I, you know, we'll just kind of end the show on you know, getting your thoughts on all on, on some of that. Okay. If you, if I, that's okay. I think the Oregon thing, as much as I, I'm probably really unhappy about the disparity, I mean, obviously they went in there. Let's face it, Oregon has had a long-time member, a law professor who's been a long-time member of the Committee on Infractions. So, of course, in the USC case, because it's a Pac-12 case, he jumps out, and they bring in Josephine Petuto, who comes in with one goal in mind, to make USC the wor- you know, out to be the worst bunch of criminals that ever uh, competed in the NCAA. So we'd forget about all the stuff that happened at Nebraska, and we'd forget all the stuff that happened in Miami where the chairman of the committee was the AD. And that's what they did. Uh, no question about it. And that law professor who was on the Committee on Infractions, who was the Pac-12's lone representative, my guess is he didn't probably care too much. He didn't bother, you know, whatever. He's still there. Okay, he didn't have a vote. But the, PAC, or the uh, NCA went to great lengths to do all this negotiated, you know, dealings with, you know, Oregon, what will it take? What will you what will you accept? Was one scholarship too many? Uh you don't really want a bull band, do you? Okay, here's how we're gonna have to do this. That USC's involvement of a um, uh female tennis player calling home on a credit card of the department, that makes it a lack of institutional control. But you guys paying twenty five thousand dollars to a Texas uh, you know, handler of players so they'd come to Oregon and and if you lied about it and made up some you know phony uh uh invoices and stuff like that then well that's you know hey we'll we'll punish the guy who left the guy who's in the NFL right now laughing at you however i don't think the Oregon punishment was all that terrible in terms of what they did and how they did it but it, what it says is then that the USC punishment was like a hundred times too big, too bad, uh, and too unfair. And but it, it's not unusual. If you looked at North Carolina, twenty years of phony classes for athletes, uh, uh, 
Ohio State, my God, if they would have, you know, spent another week in Columbus, they would have probably found a hundred more things, and they obviously didn't want to. Everything that was in the Sports Illustrated article didn't make it into the Committee on Infractions report because they didn't look, and it's obvious they haven't been looking. The only place they've looked in however many years is USC. So, obviously, and, and they changed all the rules for the USC case. They, that's when they hurriedly passed a rule that said, no other case can be used as an example of how this case should be decided because every case is different. And there are apples and oranges, you know. And so they clearly targeted USC, took the USC down, tried to destroy USC. It's obvious we got to believe that when the emails come out, uh, as many of them as we're going to be able to see, it's going to be obvious what they did. Uh, they know what they did. They're, you know, they're scurrying like little rats. They don't, they're not, you, know, you don't see Josephine Petito being interviewed anymore uh, or Missy Conboy at Notre Dame uh, not being interviewed much anymore about uh, how they, you know, or Mark Emmert, when's the last time you think he's going to say they got the USC case right? Uh, you know, they didn't. They know they didn't. They know what they did. USC fans know what they did. Does the USC administration know what they did? I don't know. Have they acted like they do? No. Have they said they know what the NCAA did to them? Not exactly. That's kind of a disparity because when you look at Oregon or Ohio State or North Carolina or Miami, where the uh, ACC commissioner is in the room basically leading cheers for Miami, and you think no one, it looked like, was defending USC, including 100% of the media who have now flipped. And now... They're 100% against the NCA after three years, but where were they three years ago? Jay Billis, maybe from ESPN, was on uh, on the side of this is ridiculous, and maybe Kirk Herbstreet a little bit. Other than that, no one, no one. Bruce Feldman, where are you? You know, Dennis Todd, where were you? We know where they are now. Uh, Ted Miller probably from ESPN got it right He's really right now. If you read Ted Miller's take on the NCAA in Oregon versus USC, he's got it completely right now. But uh, that's my take. I mean, uh, we, I think, <laughs> and we, you know, we're going to blow our horn, I guess, a little bit. We got it right day one, and whatever this is, day 1,000, we're still getting it right. Uh, and I know people say, oh, well, it makes me too upset to think about it, so I don't want to think about it. And you're, I don't disagree. It makes me too upset in some ways to think about it as well. But uh, that's the truth. They screwed USC. They screwed former players, tried to take things away from them. They never should have taken away. Nothing Reggie Bush did had one iota of an impact on the field. Uh, and they screwed all the former players. I mean, Matt Barkley and – T.J. McDonald should not have had as difficult a careers as they had. They didn't do anything. None of those kids did. And now they say, well, let's, let's be reasonable when it comes to Oregon. Let's be reasonable when it comes to Ohio State. Let's make sure those guys all get to play in that, that you know, bowl game. Let's make, you know, they were not reasonable in the USC case. We know it. They know it. Why USC hasn't chosen to make that you know, statement. I don't know. I wish I knew. 
I wish I, you know, buddy at USC would have said, these are honorable people. <laughs> you know, they're trying to get it right. No, they weren't. They're not honorable, and they weren't trying to get it right, and everybody knows that. And so, you know. That's where I am. All right. Well, I think that's a good way to end the show. And uh, we just had some, you know, for those that don't like hearing about it anymore, we've had so many questions. We didn't have a show last week, but so many questions over the past two weeks. I had to bring it up again. And no one better to do that than Dan Weber. So thanks for doing that, Dan. Okay. Right. Now I'll try to forget about it until the emails come out. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then we'll, we'll probably remember it again, hopefully. Right. That's one I want to have to remember again. I want to have to have to go through that uh, that exercise uh, when we we get our hands on those emails. Uh, we can only hope that, that that's not too long. It'd be nice to get that out of the way before fall practice starts. So, yeah. So we could you know use that as a as a jumping off point. Cool. All right. Well, Dan, thanks again, and uh, everyone else, thank you very much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. We'll be back again. Next week with another show, we might try to do a uh, recruiting blast this week as well. So if you have any recruiting questions, email those into us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 